reading a book, it's entitled Great Leaders, Great Christian Leaders of the 18th Century. It's written by, uh, the author is J.C. Ryle. Ryle was a leader in the Anglican Church. He wrote around 1860s, and what he observed was a great cultural transformation that occurred in England throughout the 1700s and the early part of the 1800s. And Bishop Ryle was a preacher, and of course he has vested interests in the church, and he asserts that this great cultural transformation, societal transformation occurred uh, by what cause, you'll never guess, but he attributed it to the preaching of the church. And so throughout this, this book, he gives brief biographies of some leaders you may know. John Wesley, so John Wesley, of course, founded Methodism. George Whitfield, uh, George Whitfield was, uh, actually made his way over to the, to, the, to the continents and went up and down the 13 colonies. Uh, great leaders of the 18th century that, according to Ryle, worked, affected a great cultural transformation. And in the introduction of his book, he says, now what did these people say? What did these church leaders preach on? And he gives a summary, about five or six basic points that the Wesleys, the Whitfields, and the others preached about uh, through these sermons, and these sermons uh, led to this transformation. And they are pretty basic, pretty foundational points. Things like they believed in the Bible. They believed that Jesus died uh, for you and me. They, there's nothing that is ex- that is, you think, oh my gosh, I just never, never thought of that. Uh, and this, these five or six foundational principles, these are the things, according to Ryle, led to this cultural transformation. I include some sermon notes in your service leaflet. And uh, Ryle says this. As he's, after he summarizes these points, he says, you Say, if you please, that you see nothing grand, that you see nothing striking or new about this list of truths. But the fact is undeniable that God has blessed these truths for the reformation of England. And what God has blessed, it ill becomes man to despise. And I start with that reference, this little book report, because I was struck as I both read that book and heard his observation, uh, and I thought about the promises of the new covenant. I was struck by the overlap. The things that we're going to discover in the new covenant, well, even discover is too strong of word. The things that I'm going to remind you of in the new covenant, these are foundational principles of our faith. There's nothing new or striking or grand. Instead, you're going to find things that are foundational, solid, and transformative, at least according to Ryle. So now to our text. We are in a sermon sermon series on the covenants. We've looked through four or five covenants that God has made with uh, his people, and now we come to the promise of a new covenant. So just by way of review, a covenant is an important people, important promise between important people about important things. And you see in verse 3 that God describes his relationship to his people as a marriage, even though I was a husband to them. Now that's important, and throughout my sermon, I'm going to reference some observations from marriage that I think are applicable. Covenant, a marriage is one of the most familiar covenants to you and me. We don't use that word very often, but we are familiar with the covenant of marriage. And that's exactly how God describes his relation, even though I was a husband. 
even though we were married. Now, unfortunately, it's a covenant or a marriage that has been broken. To use covenantal language, you could even say the covenant has been annulled. Again, citing the first part of verse 3, even though I brought them out of the land of Egypt, they broke my covenant, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So the covenant, the promises of God have been annulled. That's a big word. Uh, God said, listen to me, trust me, obey me. I will be your, pe- I will be your God. You will dwell on the land. And they, oh, they didn't. And now the covenant is no more. Gone. And in this promise of a new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, God promises to to make a new covenant from the, from the ashes of the old, from the debris of a broken marriage. He's going to reconstruct a new marriage. He's going to reconstitute a, a new covenant. And so that is our text for this morning. And I see three promises that come from the new covenant. You can see them along with me. I'm going to mention them in order. We'll address them out of order. So I'm in verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with my people. The first promise of the new covenant is one of intimacy. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer shall, shall they teach one another, but each will know me from the greatest to the smallest. I summarize a little bit. So um, the first promise is one of intimacy. The second promise is one of heart change. I will put my, this is again verse 33, I will put my law within them. I will write my law on their hearts. So heart change. My law will be inside. Third promise of the new covenant is the last and it's the promise of forgiveness. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. And though listed last, that is the most foundational. You see that word for? That's giving you a cause. If you said, you're going to be happy for I will give you a birthday cake. Why are you going to be happy? Because I will give you a birthday cake. That little word for says the renewed intimacy that you will have between God, the new heart change you will have is based upon something. It's based upon my forgiveness of you. So though listed last, it is the most foundational, and that is where we'll start as we explore the promises of the new, of the new covenant. The first promise I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. Forgiveness is the starting point and the necessary starting point of a restored covenant of a renewed marriage. Don Henley said it well when he wrote, I've been trying to get down to the heart of the matter, but my will gets weak, my thoughts seem to scatter. Anybody recognize? But I think it's about forgiveness. Forgiveness, even if you don't love me anymore. Don Henley, Eagles, yes, thank you. Thank you, Kelly. We have one recognition, too. All right, great song. It's about forgiveness. What do you need in order to restore a relationship that's been shattered? You got to start with forgiveness. And so this passage says, I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. Now, when the Bible 
uses these two phrases kind of stuck right together. It's called parallelism. It's one way, two ways of saying the same thing. I will forgive and I will forget their iniquity. I want to focus on that last phrase. I will remember their sins no more. Often throughout the Bible, you find this language of cognition, right? I, God knows, or he knows the ways of the righteous. He doesn't know the way of the wicked. He uh, remembers sin no more. Or um, we think of those terms primarily in cognition, like, oh, I recall, I think. That's not how the Bible uses those words. I remember. What it means is the action associated with remembering. So, for instance, uh, in Genesis chapter 8, the Bible says, God remembered Noah, right? That's the first covenant. That does not mean that God said, oh yeah, I remember where I put Noah. He's over there in the, in the ark. No, God knew very well where Noah was. What that statement means is that he remembered and he acted upon, his, the, the word focuses on action. We think of it t- primarily in terms of, oh, uh, where did I put it? The Bible focuses on action. When the Bible says that God will remember our sins no more, it does not mean that God forgot about our nature. It's like, oh. Did, I always, did, did David become better? Is, does he no longer a, a broken human? No. It simply means that God will not act upon what he knows to be true. He will remember it no more. And for me, again, th- think marriage. One of the hardest things to do in a marriage is to move past hurt. And my wife and I have a healthy marriage, a happy marriage an easy marriage, and I'm very thankful for that. But in any marriage, you're going to have bumps. Uh, And when we encounter bumps, one of the hardest things to do is to simply move on, to let it go, to act, to think, I am not going to retaliate. I am not going to carry a grudge. I'm not going to act and to be passive aggressive because passive aggressive is still aggressive. It is really hard. And anyone who's been in marriage, friendship, parent, whatever, you know how hard it is to think, I've been hurt, but I am not going to act on it. I'm going to put it behind me. And that's exactly what the Bible says, that God will remember our sins no more. And that is the foundational promise of the new covenant. Because what we learn in the new covenant is that The reason that God does not act on our sin is because he's acted on our sin through another. Listen to what Bishop Ryle says about the preaching that transformed the culture. He writes this, they, these preachers, again, and you find this in your sermon notes, they loved Christ's person. They rejoiced in Christ's promises. They urged men to walk after Christ's example. But the one subject above all others which they delighted to dwell on was the atoning blood which Christ shed on the cross. God no longer responds to our sinfulness. Why? Because he already has. The apostle writes in 2 Corinthians, for our sake God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
God no longer acts, he no longer remembers your sin because he already has. The assurance of forgiveness. This is the first and the foundational promise of the new covenant, and it leads to the second. That is an intimacy. And again, verse 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. So think just a little bit of Bible uh, history. Uh, the old covenant, a mediator put an old covenant in place. So Moses was the mediator. Remember Moses' Ten Commandments. And in the story of Exodus, Moses is a go-between. So he goes up to the mountain. God says, tell your people, do X, Y, and Z. Moses goes down the mountain, tells the people, God said, do this. People say, sounds great. Moses goes back up the mountain. And about five or six times throughout Exodus, Moses is just, he is the go-between. He is the mediator. Now, think in terms of marriage. Mediation can be very, very helpful in a marriage that is struggling with communication. Mediation, counseling can be helpful in a marriage regardless. But think of a, a marriage that's been strained. A marriage goes to, the couple goes to a counselor or a mediator. They sit in their chairs and the mediator says, what I hear you saying, wife, is this. And the, tells the husband, what your wife is saying is that. And the husband says, well, what I'm saying, right? There is a go-between and that is great. Someone to mediate what is being communicated. A mediator is great for the boardroom. A mediator is bad for the bedroom. A mediator, while it has its place, will destroy intimacy. Imagine a mediator at a romantic candlelight dinner. What I'm trying to tell, it just would not work. And what the promise of the new covenant is there will now be an, an, a, a, an intimacy, no more mediation, that you will have some direct access to God through Jesus. What we find the, the, in the good news of the new covenant is the mediator between God and man is the God, the God man, Jesus. And when Peter and I stand behind the table, we'll say, I will recount the words of the new covenant. And there are two very important words that will say, this is the new covenant for you. This is for you. This is Jesus saying, for you, not for, yes, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, absolutely. But more to the point, he died for you. And he would have died for you if you're the only one to die for. He has the whole world in his hands, absolutely, but he has you in his hands. There is an intimacy that is available to you and me through the new covenant. This is done for you, instituted for you by God himself. And so a response to the promise of forgiveness is simply the, the openness of trust. We receive, we thank God, we thank God personally for what he has done for us. So the response of faith. Third and final. So we've seen that the promise of the New covenant is for forgiveness. The promise is intimacy. And the third promise is change of heart. I will write my law on their heart. Now this is clearly a reference to 
the Old Covenant. Again, Moses. Where was the law written? It was written on stone. This new covenant promises to be written on the heart. In other words, there will be a, a change of heart. Again, the image of marriage is helpful. I was their husband, yet they broke my rules. And here's what I, what I know about heart change. I know that heart change is really hard. I know it's really, whatever change goes on in my heart, it goes on very slowly. But I know this, rules don't change the heart. They just don't. All the rules in the world will never change your heart. Now, my wife and I have rules. We've put down a few guiding principles of how we want to, uh, to, uh, uh, to define our relationship and how we want to interact with one another. And I think it's a healthy thing. But those rules can be guiding. They can never be motivating. Honey, why are you home? Well, because it's a rule. Why are you spending time with me? Well, it's rule number five. Uh, why are you, why'd you get me flowers? Rule number 15. Like just, it would not work. Rules don't change the heart. And you can try it, you can pile on the rules as much as you want. You have a kid, you have a spouse, you have a, it just will not work. You can restrain, but you cannot change. What changes the heart? You know it. The Apostle Paul says, love fulfills the law's demand. And that means that love does what law cannot. And here's how heart change works. Heart change works when you realize that you actually love the person, that the person actually loves you, and what was a burden before becomes a desire now. Why do you bring flowers, go on dates, spend time? Because, not because there's a rule, but because I love you. Listen, the Bible would call this the new birth, the regenerated heart. And again, Bishop Ryle says, the change that they preached was not a dormant, torpid, motionless thing. It was something that could be discerned and known. There was a change in heart. During Lent, we recite the Ten Commandments and we say, you shall not, we give the rules, right? And then what do we say? Incline my heart to keep this law. You shall not covet. Lord, have mercy upon me. Write all these laws on my heart, we pray. May they not be an external, may they be internal. May I realize that you love me and you are for me and that you are with me. And because this, may my heart be changed. And it happens slowly, imperfectly, but truly heart change. The new covenant differs from the old covenant in three important ways. The promise of forgiveness, access and intimacy, and the possibility of heart change. And as I conclude, I simply want us to remind us that there must be a difference. We must be the type of people who are convinced through our own personal experience 
that there is a difference in having known the forgiveness that is offered to us through Jesus. There is a difference between being covered by the blood of the Lamb and not being covered by the blood of the Lamb. We must be convinced from personal experience that the intimacy we have with Jesus is better than the intimacy we have without him. We must be convinced through personal experience that the heart change that we can experience through Jesus is better than the heart change we experience without him. In some, we must be convinced that Jesus makes a difference. There's a difference between knowing him and not knowing him. There's a difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. There is a difference between his shed blood on the cross and his, his not knowing his shed blood on the cross. And so as I come to a close, I'd like to invite us just to take a moment and ponder these three promises. New, no. Striking, no. Foundational, yes. Transformational, you better believe it. We thank you for these promises of the new covenant. We thank you that you have secured our forgiveness, that you will not act upon the memory of our sin because you have already acted. You sent your son Jesus to die in our place. We thank you that we now have an intimacy with him that is, was not available before. We thank you that we have the possibility of a change of heart to be reborn, that your law might be written on our hearts. This is what your word says. This is what we believe. Amen. Please rise.